Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 as we continue to work through the book of Galatians. Galatians 5, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12 today. We see this idea of running a race, the Christian life, and kind of what can happen in the midst of that. Before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him again in prayer and ask for His help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, this idea that the Apostle mentions of running well so many times in our own lives, we don't feel like we're running at all, much less running well. And so Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would strengthen us with it, that you would give us hope, that you would show us anew your love for us, your covenant people, that we would not rest upon our own failures, but we would rest upon you. And that as we open your word, that you would change us, that we would be renewed in mind and spirit as we come to your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to this passage about running, of course, it makes me think about running and how much I love to run. Actually, I hate running. It's horrible. But it made me think of a really famous race. 1984 Summer Olympics, there were two runners of the race called the 3K, and there was the American named Mary Decker and the English named Zola Budd, which is a fun name, Zola Budd. They were expected to place first and second in the race, so Mary Mary Decker had a slight edge over Zola Budd, but there was really a lot of toss-up who was going to win the race, and in the race itself, Decker was out front, and in front of this big pack of runners, and both of them were completely unaccustomed to running in a pack because they were usually out in front. And so Zola Bud was trying to kind of come around her and cut in on her a little bit too sharply, and it caused them both to stumble. And Decker, in fact, eventually just spilled into the infield of the track and wasn't able to finish the race, had some sort of injury. And Zola Bud was so shook up by the whole event that she actually finished seventh in the race. And there was a whole lot of controversy about this. It kind of goes down as one of the most famous television sports moments, if you remember that. I was really little. I didn't even know there were Olympics in 1984. But <clears throat> it was a really big controversy. Decker was not able to finish the race. It didn't really matter whose fault it was. At the end of the time, she wasn't able to finish. In our text today, we have a kind of race that is mentioned. It's the race of the Christian life. Paul must have been a fan of sports himself because he uses the sports analogies quite a bit as he writes his letters to the churches in the first century. Here, the Christian is running, and but they're hindered, is what we read. They're hindered by others. And for those in the Galatian churches, those hindering them were the group called the Judaizers, who we've been learning quite a bit about over the last several weeks. Paul not only has some clear instructions for the believers that are in those churches, but also has some very harsh words for those who would hinder them. Some of his words today are among the most harsh words in the Scriptures, in fact. 
they're just very, they're very hard. They're very, they're very, um, insulting, I guess, to the other party. So as we work through them, we'll see both comfort and rebuke on both sides. We'll see a clear warning then to others who would attempt to hinder and hinder the Christian in their race of faith. And so as we look through the text, we're going to consider three main ideas, the race for truth, the effect of falsehood, and then the offense of the cross. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 7. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Galatians 5, starting at verse 7 and reading through verse 12. You were running running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So remember last week, we looked at the idea of how if one were to accept circumcision as a means of salvation, that they would forego the righteousness of Christ, as it's written in verse 2. I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Well, the question is then, what is the advantage of Christ? It's good for the Christian to know the answer to this. What is the advantage of Christ? Well, that we have his righteousness rather than our own. We have his perfect righteousness rather than our own imperfect righteousness. We have his work and merit for ourselves, and we no longer have to attempt to earn any merit for ourselves when it comes to God's favor. We have 100% favor with God because of Christ. And this is the truth of the Christian life. This is the primary truth of the Christian life. There are a lot of other aspects to Christianity for sure, but as, and as we move through the rest of this book, we're going to see this idea of obedience and how the Christian should act come to the forefront. But the primary doctrine of the Christian faith is justification by grace alone through faith alone. This is why Paul uses such strong language here. This is why we should take notice of what's going on. There's an apparent tension in this text and really most of this book, and in fact, a lot of the New Testament. There's an apparent tension between the believer's call to obedience and the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Apparent apparent tension because it's not really there. Tensions brought out with another, with apparent contradictions between like the James and, and Paul, right? Who are really in no conflict at all, but when we read them, we're like, okay, maybe they didn't agree. There's no tension there between the doctrine of justification and the call for the Christian to obey. The problem exists when we start to think that our obedience earns us better standing before God. Or, that our lack of obedience does the opposite, that it somehow takes away from our standing with God. 
And I think this that important distinction is the one that will carry us through the rest of the book as we study through it. It brings us to the first point, the race for truth. Look with me again at verse 7. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So again, Paul uses the picture of a race, believers running the race of faith, not as a sprint, of course. We understand that uh, the race of faith is not a sprint or some sort of heated contest where we're in a contest with one another to see who is going to win, but it's instead a kind of marathon where the prize is just finishing it all. The picture here is of someone running along just fine, having a, a good race, right? Running well, no problems, until someone cuts into them, just like Zola Bud cutting into Mary Decker. The great race turns into a disaster. The Greek here for the word hindered is actually literally means to cut into. Just kind of the picture of an ancient race where a runner literally cuts off another runner, preventing them from running the race, possibly preventing them from finishing it all. Paul's question, who hindered you from obeying the truth or who cut into you to keep you from obeying the truth is a very full question. Because we have to ask the question, what is the truth? Right? It's not just any truth, but it's the central truth of Christianity, the doctrine of faith alone, justification by faith in Christ alone. Notice too, this isn't something that we just simply sort of intellectually give a nod to. Yes, I agree with the doctrine of faith alone. Absolutely, I 100% agree with it. We aren't just simply affirming that truth. What does he say that we are to do with it? We are to obey the truth. Who has hindered you from obeying this truth? It's one thing to agree with the doctrine. It's quite another to live your lives as if that doctrine is actually true. And this is the prime difficulty in our walk with Christ because we are so easily swayed by the effect of human effort on our salvation. Any little thing that seemingly gives us an edge, we buy into that without a moment's thought. So obedience to the doctrine is just as important as belief in it at all. In fact, obedience shows the nature of our belief. If you really believe it, you're going to be living it. It's as simple as that. So again, in this prime struggle of faith that we know that we all have, that Paul knows that all believers have, this is why he comes down so hard on those who would hinder other Christians in that. He knows that Christians struggle. So taking advantage of that situation, taking advantage of that struggle, makes you the worst kind of false teacher. To make sure they understand, Paul reminds them that this kind of calling doesn't come from God, of course, verse 8. This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. God does not call His people to obedience that they might earn a place before Him. Obey me so that I can figure out which one of you is the best. It's not at all what's going on. The people of God are already counted righteous before Him because of Jesus. We're all counted righteousness before righteousness before Him. So He calls His people to obedience that we might experience the true freedom that we have in Christ. We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. For those in Christ, the law isn't a prison any longer. It's a breath of fresh air. It shows us how we ought to live in a life of faith, a life of faith that pleases God. And again, 
Not pleasing Him so we can earn favor, but pleasing Him as a parent who, who is pleased with their child's obedience. When my children obey me, I'm not, I'm not thinking, well, they just upped their status with me. They're more daughters now than they were just a few seconds ago. A child's obedience doesn't change the child's status, right? But it does sure put a smile on the father's face. That's this idea of the walk of faith that we have. In Christ, we are called to a life of obedience. The law of God is not the enemy of the believer. And in Christ, the law should be the sweet words of a loving father. If you don't know Jesus, then of course the law has the opposite effect, right? It can only condemn. But in Christ, it is a song of gladness. And the crux of this gladness is obedience to the doctrine of faith alone. Knowing that we are counted his child because of the work of Jesus. If that doctrine is challenged, or we are hindered from it in any way, the rest of our race kind of begins to unravel. If that, if that doctrine is loosed, then the rest of our faith just goes away. Like Mary Decker laying on that infield in Los Angeles. We'll be unable to finish the race. Sadly, this is the fate of many who once called themselves believers. They start the race, but they are hindered by something. They fall out, showing themselves to never be believers in the first place. Most of the time, they are hindered by some kind of false teaching, which has a way of spreading from one place to inhabit the believer's whole way of life. This one little false teaching can change the way the believer even sees the whole world. That brings me to the next point, the effect of falsehood. Look with me at verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you've ever worked with any kind of leavening agent, like yeast or like baking powder, you know that as soon as you mix it into the dough and you start to knead the dough, the yeast is going to work its way through all of the dough, right? If you wanted to take the yeast out at that point, you're just going to have to start over instead. You can't, you can't take it out because it's in, it's really incorporated into the whole loaf of bread. The whole loaf is affected by it. It's not as if just part of the loaf is going to raise. That would be really strange. Imagine seeing like a loaf of bread that's supposed to be rising and then just one little bubble kind of come to the top. That would be really, would be really odd, right? The yeast doesn't work that way. The whole thing rises because of just a little bit of yeast. And it's very similar with false doctrine. Just as a little bit of false doctrine causes the rest of the life of faith to fall apart. I'll use a couple of examples here. I'll use a doctrine that you all know that I'm very passionate about. This is the idea that there are many who claim to receive revelation from God independent of the Bible. Meaning, they say that God is speaking to them, either through an audible voice that they actually hear, right? Or this, they, you know, like the word they like to use is the, the still small voice in order to quote from 1 Kings, which makes it sound biblical instead of like garbage. And what do they do with this doctrinal error? Well, they claim that God is telling them all sorts of things, which makes them seem a lot more spiritual than those of us who are actually honest. And it gives them power over people. And they start to ask for things, mostly money. 
They claim to be able to do other kinds of amazing acts, like heal people. They claim to have even gone to heaven. Most all of them claim to have gone to heaven. They claim power over the weather and sickness and death, and they claim that you can have this too if you just have enough faith, or really you just need me because I have all the faith, and you can just send me money, and I'll take good care of you. And it's all a big circus act that hinges on one seemingly small doctrinal error, but God's really speaking to me. What about the error of my good works? Earn me a better Jesus. Again, the same kind of thing can happen. It seems like a pretty small thing. But all of a sudden you have first class and second class Christians. Those who do the works and those who don't. And I get to decide what makes me a first class Christian, right? I get to decide these little parameters and I can look down at everyone else. Those who do are given places of authority given places of influence. Those who don't must accept the authority of those who are better than they are. Some individuals are held in such high regard. I'll give you an example. You know, like the Pope. The Pope is called the Vicar of Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard him called that before. The Vicar of Christ is a fancy way of saying the substitute of Christ. This man, those who follow him, they He claims to be so holy that he can actually claim to be a substitute for Christ on earth, which is the job of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The very name Pope means Father, Father of all believers, even though believers only have one Father, the Heavenly Father. He calls himself the Supreme Pontiff or High Priest even though Christians only have one high priest and his name is Jesus. This, my good works, earn me a better Jesus. Seems like a small thing, but it's that little bit of leaven leavens the whole love. Obviously, this is an extreme example, but the whole Protestant Reformation came about because of it. If you want to think about this as a small thing in our churches, we can't expect that kind of upheaval, right, in the local church, but it can definitely feel like that at the local level when a group sees themselves as better than everyone else because of what they are doing or not doing in the name of Jesus. Verse 12, Paul tells us what he thinks about this sort of thing. I wish those who unsettle you, those who have hindered you in your race, would emasculate themselves. Now, without going into detail, he is essentially saying that if circumcision is such a big deal, if circumcision is so good and it makes you so close to God, then why not just go all the way? There were pagan cults at the time that would castrate themselves as a part of their religion. Paul is saying that if you want to show true devotion then, then just go out and completely mutilate yourselves. Just go all the way. And you might think that this is pretty harsh language, and that's because it is. It's harsh language from the apostle. Not a way that we'd probably talk to our worst enemies, but he's an apostle of Christ's church. He had that kind of authority. He served as a chief defender of the faith. And so you can understand that he was a little bit upset that there were those who were hindering God's people. If they were going to continue to unsettle the churches, he had very choice words for them. Again, because 
this doctrine doesn't just make little ripples, right? It's not something that just kind of affects a little bit, but it tears away at the very fabric of the church. It infiltrates every good thing, and no doctrine is safe when one false doctrine is allowed. The reason I'm so passionate about preaching truth from this pulpit and why my anger, my own anger, and you've all seen it, flares up a little bit when I hear, just a little bit, when I hear about false teaching or teachers out there in other churches, it's because the people of God deserve better. God himself demands better. And though this kind of thing can be bad for the church, it was bad for the Galatians, it was Paul's hope that they would actually turn that around. That's what you see in verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. How could he have hope? Talked a little bit about this this morning in Sunday school. How can we have hope when people are so bad? Because the Lord of the church is able As Jude puts it in Jude 24, the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's why Paul had hope that they were going to get through this. Christ preserves his church, though there are those who will fall away, who were never part of his church. He truly will persevere those who are his until the end. And those who would cut them off in their race, they face a severe kind of punishment. That brings us to the last point, the offense of the cross. Look with me at verse 11. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Most commentators see this as the Judaizers probably spreading the lie that Paul was preaching circumcision as well. Well, Paul's preaching it, so it's good, right? Well, we know that he didn't do that. He spent the better part of this book defending the fact that he hasn't been doing that. It is true that Paul encouraged Timothy to be circumcised as a minister to Jewish Christians so that the uncircumcision wouldn't be a stumbling block to the Jewish people that he was ministering to. But it's also true that he forbade Titus from being circumcised for the opposite reason, so that he would not be a stumbling block to the Gentiles. That's what he says up there in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. His point is this. If he's still preaching circumcision against what he's not doing, then why is he being persecuted? If he was still preaching this, if he was preaching this thing, then why is he being persecuted? If he preaches circumcision, then the offense of the cross is completely removed. There's, it's not offensive at all. If you can just do good things and be a good person and then get saved, what is the offense of the, of the cross? The offense of the cross is that we have nothing to do with it. No one besides Jesus was on the cross. Because he alone did the work. Our only contribution to the cross of Christ was the sin that made it necessary. We don't add anything to it. He did all the work. And this is the most offensive message, or the most offensive thing about that message, that Jesus alone did it. 
and that he did it even while we were yet sinners. Even while we were his enemies, he did this thing for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't be easily swayed by any false doctrine, but especially that which would claim that to increase your righteousness, you need to just do this other little thing. We're so easily swayed by it because the cross is ultimately offensive even to us at times. We want to see, well, what what about if I can just do this to make myself a little bit better? There's only one way to, to heaven, and that's through Jesus alone. We need to know the truth, study the truth, obey the truth, so that when error pops up, it will be it will stick out like a sore thumb, and we can deal with it. Rest in Jesus Christ, because He is all you need. There are unbelievers here. Just as Paul wrote, I understand that the cross of Christ is offensive. It's offensive because we all want to help ourselves. But here's the greatest offense. Understand this, hear this. If you're here, God doesn't help those who help themselves. He doesn't. Those who want to help themselves, Christ is of no advantage to you. And without Jesus... You have no hope before the Heavenly Father, before the one who demands absolute holiness. You have no hope before Him if you're planning to take your own holiness and stand before Him. Jesus offers freely the truth, the hope of the Gospel, that He became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Answer His call, repent, and believe. Call upon the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. For those of us in Christ, in conclusion, let us be quick to obey the truth that we have been given. Not only that, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not cut in on others as they run the race. Rather than cutting in, let us run the race together, side by side, obeying the truth, resting in Jesus. And let us proclaim Jesus to a lost world who desperately needs him. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we read these words, we know there are times that we feel like we're running well. And we can also point to times that we know that we have cut in on others. We are thankful, Lord, that our own ability to run well, to run with others, None of these things matter when it comes to our standing before a Holy Father. The only thing that matters is faith in you. So Lord, help us both to rest in you and also to obey the truth that you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So please stand with me now as we sing our response to God's word.